as we've already mentioned, I think just a moment ago in the announcements, it truly is an opportunity of great blessing and joy that brings us together today, certainly this morning with the opportunity to worship on that occasion and again to pour out the praise and thanksgiving of our heart unto the great God of heaven. How thankful and how truly of a gracious and, and grat- heart full of gratitude you and I are able to be. This evening, as we continue that series of lessons on the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we have arrived at the fourth chapter tonight, and in fact, ever so briefly, if we just recall those things that have brought us to where we now are, we have already learned about the tremendous letter of encouragement that the book of Hebrews is, written to that group of individuals who were so sorely tried and tempted to leave behind the matter of Christianity and to pursue again the friendly confines of Judaism. And yet the writer reminds them over and again about that which they would be giving up if they were to forsake the Christ and to return to attempting to keep the matter of Judaism. We've already learned in that overview of the book the precious warnings, the dire encouragements that were shed forth toward them, And we specifically have already learned how Christ is superior to the prophets. As noble and as worthy as those souls may have been, they nonetheless do not compare to what the Christ and his prophetical work was able to accomplish. We then learn that Christ is superior to the angels. In terms of his divinity, it was in fact to him that God had declared that he would be in fact as God. And that was not said to any angel. And we learn in chapter 2 that Christ is superior even to the angels from the perspective he, in his humanity, was able to accomplish at Calvary and in the matter of his suffering what no angel ever could. Last week, we learned that Christ is superior even to Moses. As notable a lawgiver as he was, Christ still is far superior than he because Christ as a son over his own house, not a mere servant in the house like Moses was, But Christ in his greatness rules over the house that is you and is me. Hebrews 3 verse 6. Tonight we pick up that strain, that train of events. Because you might notice near the end of chapter 3 there was a little word used that springboards us into the next chapter. Verse number 18 of chapter 3 read like this. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. And there's that little four-letter word rest, R-E-S-T, which will be the central theme through most of chapter 4. Building on that thought and, in fact, powerfully embedding it in our hearts, we shall learn tonight what is meant by that word rest and how lovely and how beautiful a thought it really, really is. With those words as an introduction, let's turn our attention tonight then and ask some questions about, first, Christ's superiority to Joshua, and also the thought about the Christian rest that we're about to read about in chapter 4 on so many occasions. It is with those thoughts in mind that I would invite you to read with me in chapter number 4, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 4, listen to the Christian rest that is set before us. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, 
although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So many uses in those 11 verses of the word rest. And you might again notice the way that it ends, that verse 11, an injunction to all of us, you and me, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. Are you looking forward to rest? Am I looking forward to that described rest that is found in these verses? You and I are encouraged, in fact, we are admonished, let us therefore enter into that rest. I'd invite you to study with me a few minutes near the opening part of our lesson and see if we can more thoroughly appreciate the lesson behind this matter of rest and why that verse 11 is such a beautiful entreaty to you and me to enter into that proper rest of God. As we begin that, you'll notice a few of the thoughts that begin our thinking for this fourth chapter. You might have noted in verse number 8, it says, For if Jesus had given them rest, and if you're reading in the American Standard Translation, that word there is Joshua. It isn't referring there to the Son of God. It was to that gentleman well known from Old Testament lore, that person who had such a vital role to play in the livelihood of ancient Israel. It will be to him that I would ask us to give some thought for at least a few minutes. In fact, isn't it interesting to consider how significant a figure Joshua was in the Old Testament? One could perhaps begin by noting, even prior to Moses' death, wasn't Joshua hand-selected, if you please, by God to be the successor to Moses as the person who would lead that great group of the children of Israel? He had been able to observe Moses, watch Moses, and as he learned from him, he also had received some dramatic teaching from the very mouth of Moses. You'll also remember a great note of faithfulness was found in Joshua. When we remember at the city of Kadesh Barnea, after the children of Israel had left the confines of Egypt and had wandered for some two years and had reached the southern boundary of the land of Canaan, that land of promise, it was then that the spies were sent out by the very command of Moses to the people when those spies returned, wasn't it true that only two of them, two out of the twelve, returned a verdict, this is the land, let us rise up at once and take it. Among those two was Joshua, the other was Caleb, but we note there that Joshua had firm conviction in the truth of God and that God would be with those people as he had promised to be. However, the ten won out. Those who were in fact, burdened with disbelief. They had less than sufficient confidence in the truth, the vitality and promise of God, and hence the people did not rise up and take it. 
It was on that occasion God decreed to them relative to their faithlessness that you will wander for many more years until all of you who are disbelieving shall die in this wilderness. You will not suffer to endure my rest. You'll notice on that occasion and in the language before us, one of the usages of the word rest, you'll notice again verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. On that occasion, the word rest had specific reference in that Old Testament era and in the days of Joshua to the land of Canaan. That's where God's people at that time were going to find their rest. Those years of bondage were now behind them. The years of wilderness wandering were shortly to be behind them. That was the place that God was to provide them with that rest, the enjoyment, the opportunity to inhabit a land that flowed with milk and honey, the opportunity to appreciate the fertility of that land and all that that land had been able to provide. So when Joshua sought to provide them with rest, he did lead them into that land. And you'll notice that after the death of Moses, it was Joshua whom God said now, turn not to the right hand or to the left. Moses, my servant is dead. Joshua 1 verses 1 to 8. And you, Joshua, are the one to lead them into the land. In those months then that followed that event, Joshua did take up the mantle of leadership over the people of Israel. He led them across the Jordan River. He led them into that land and they enjoyed victories on most occasions at Jericho and in other places. And as we read the 24 chapters of the book of Joshua, we're able to see that not only did they conquer that land by the aid and help of God, they also divided it amongst the twelve tribes. Each tribe had its specific allotment of land, and they thereafter were to, of course, protect their land and to make certain to cast out those inhabitants that were actually previously living there. As one gives some consideration to those matters, might I ask you to think about what ultimately happened? And let me introduce it with this question. Was that rest that Joshua provided permanent? I think we each know the answer to that. Their occupation of that promised land was conditional upon their faithfulness to God's commandments. Even Moses, before he had passed away, made the prophecy that you will turn from the God who loved you and from the God who has given you this land, and in fact, you will ultimately be removed from it. And finally, did that not occur when, during the days of the judges, they time and again were taken captive? Finally, in the days of the captivity to Babylon, they were ultimately removed from that land for 70 long years? It's easy to appreciate that rest, though they initially understood it, it was not permanent. When thought of that way, that's a bit of a sadness, isn't it? That which they looked forward to for so long, their disbelief caused them not to inhabit it permanently. That leads me to make that comment. You'll notice that Joshua finally did lead them into the land, but even then, they didn't occupy it permanently. Even though Joshua accomplished what Moses had not, it's still the case that is there a better rest than that awaiting. In fact, that's the very theme of these opening 11 verses. I'd ask you to consider it from this particular point. You'll notice one interesting feature in verses, verses 8 and 9. I'd ask you to read that with me again. Verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 4. And I will use the word Joshua since that's the Greek rendering. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. The logic of the Hebrew writer is peerless, isn't it? And the logic proceeds as follows. If Joshua had truly given them the ultimate and final rest that God had ever foretold and prophesied, then there would never have been a need for another one. There would never have been any prophecies about a later rest, for that would have been it. Isn't that a powerful thing? Because then the writer quotes from the book of Psalms, which was written long after the children of Israel had occupied the land of Canaan. Hundreds of years later, in fact. And yet, in that case, we find yet another prophecy about a rest of God. I wonder, could that prophecy be referring to a rest that you and I might still look forward to enjoying? A rest perhaps permanent in its nature, never to be tarnished or marred once it's inhabited. I'd submit that's precisely the author's point. No wonder he thus says in verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is still a rest to which you and I can look forward. A rest to which you and I can in fact joyously long and yearn to inhabit. And that rest that we can certainly appreciate the capability of being a part of. With those thoughts in mind, look then at the superiority of Jesus. We've noticed Moses wasn't able to take them into the promised land. Because of his own sin, he wasn't allowed to enter it. Up comes his successor, namely Joshua. Even though he entered the land, it was not a permanent inhabitant for them. They later, due to disbelief, were cast out of it, and the land was not able to be permanently occupied by them. We now can ask, what about the rest Jesus offers? Does it suffer from the same limitations as the rest that Joshua then led them to for only a while? These matters are sufficiently challenging because it perhaps leads us to see the very thoughts near the close of that opening slide. The parallel to what you and I enjoy today is truly momentous. It is the case there is a rest for the people of God. What is that rest? Can we identify it? Does the Hebrew writer point us toward it? Is it something we can pinpoint and directly affirm by name? The answer is yes. What is the rest to which he refers? It's heaven itself. It is that lovely land in the hereafter in which truly there is a degree of permanence. Once you and I are blessed to enter therein as the faithful of God, on that notable day of judgment in which we are allowed by blessing to enter therein, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Never shall we have to worry about being cast out, kicked out, forsaken, removed, thrust out in any way. The entrance therein will be a permanent one. And that's the rest to which the Hebrew writer points your attention and mine. We thus could longingly look forward to not having a rest encumbered with the limitation of that land of Canaan. They only occupied it for a little while. We look for a homeland, a place forevermore. As you give some thought to how the writer develops those things, appreciate very clearly the warning that he issues then for you and me today. The children of Israel occupied that promised land for a while. Why did they lose it? They lost it because of unbelief. The writer said so. Note again verse, verses 3 and 4. And as he begins that thought in verse 2, he says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. 
that word them refers back to those children of Israel. And as he makes use of the word gospel, keep in mind that's just the Greek idea of good news. Good news, glad tidings was preached to them through Moses, through Joshua, through the other individuals. And yet, they did not faithfully respond to it. And because of that, they lost their inheritance in the land of Canaan. They were thrust out and removed from it. That warning thus rings loudly in your ears and mine. Is it possible for us to lose our inheritance in that promised and eternal land hereafter? To all in this audience who have been baptized in a scriptural fashion and have known the powerful wonder of living for the Master and knowing what He has done for us, your name and mine have been enrolled in that book of life. And with that name being written there, we know what that involves and the promise which it brings. But question, is it possible for you and I to so conduct ourselves that that name will be erased? That we will lose our right and promise to that land? That's the idea behind the warning. No wonder the author said again in verses 3 and 4, For we which have believed do enter into rest... As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Due to their unbelief, they did not enter that rest. Their carcasses were strewn across the wilderness of sin due to their faithlessness and due to their failure to obey the God of heaven who had made them, who had given them the promise, and who in fact had given them direction to that land of Canaan. Cannot a similar thing happen to any person today? Though the person may well be aware of the vitality and life and goodness and promise of God, then to so live in a way to lose that salvation. Despite the fact there are some in our world who teach that once a person is saved that he can never be lost, they only delude themselves. They are apparently ignorant of a vast portion of the New Testament. There probably are easily to be noted dozens and dozens of passages that warn you and warn me to ever live with urgency, with caution, and with an appreciation that it is possible for a person to fall from grace. In Galatians 5 verse 4, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian brethren, he specifically told them, Ye who trust in the law of Moses, ye are fallen from grace. They who would revert then from Christianity and place their confidence and trust in something else had fallen from grace. In Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse number 18, we read on that occasion about the warning that the Apostle Peter ushered and uttered with respect to that idea. We will remember no doubt parts of that, but it goes like this. He spoke about those who had overcome the temptations and entanglements of this world. But then he said, but are again entangled therein. Despite the fact that they had escaped, they now had again been entangled in those matters of the world. What was the end result? What was the verdict? He said, the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. They are worse off now. They had been better never to have known the way of salvation than had known it to turn aside from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And then that proverb that we each can rather vividly recall is used to perhaps cap that discussion. He said it's much like that sow that was washed returning to her wallowing in the mire and that dog returning to his own vomit again. That's how the inspired apostle described it. 
can it, is it possible for a person to fall from grace? What about Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12? When to each person in that congregation, and you and me alike by inspiration, he said, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Friend, if it's not possible to fall, why did Paul ever usher that warning? It is possible to fall. You and I can be led astray. False teachers could accomplish that. If we are not sufficiently grounded, we could proceed to follow that which is fruitless and that which, in fact, is eternally damning to our soul. Or perhaps to approach it from another perspective. Note again verse 2. How else could we lose our salvation? In the actual Greek rendering, it reads interestingly. The King James reads it as follows. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The word haply occurs in Greek in, verse, in the text of verses 1 and 2. That word haply suggests a note of apathy. It suggests a note of inattentiveness. Is it possible for a person to just become inattentive, a bit careless, on the side of not giving due attention and due urgency to the thought of one's salvation and just lapse along ultimately into worldliness? We each probably have known of individuals for whom that has happened. Once they, in fact, were perhaps members of the congregation known for strength, understanding of activity and productivity in terms of the work of the Lord, but something happened. They gradually became a bit careless, and over time, they ultimately just seemed to lose all interest in and vitality for the work of the Lord. What began with inattention ended up in complete apostasy. They need to be reclaimed, and our prayers are certainly on their behalf. For in their current state, we know they aren't saved. For remember, Peter said the latter end is worse than them in the beginning. Oh, how this warning is one for you and me today, isn't it? We too must never be lax, never take our salvation trivially, never lose appreciation for what has been purchased for us. No wonder the church is so special and how blessed we are to be a part of it. And let us always lift high its work and strive to, in fact, push forward the boundaries of the gospel and all the ways that God allows us to do. For we are his fellow workers, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 9. And we are those who enjoy the opportunity of understanding what has been purchased for us. These warnings in Hebrews, thus, are not only needful for those of that day, but certainly continue to be ever needful for you and me till this day. As we give further thought to that notion of rest, no doubt there's some verses that have already come to your mind that challenge us with some beautiful thoughts about it. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Savior uttered those words recorded for us in the closing three verses of Matthew 11. Rest, he mentioned twice. He invites us, he encourages us, he implores us to come and to partake of that rest he offers. Clearly, he wasn't referring to the rest of the physical land of Canaan. That had been centuries and centuries earlier. 
there was still a rest to which Jesus referred. And did do we not find the Apostle John echoing that sentiment in Revelation fourteen thirteen? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. One more time, this lovely thought of a rest to which you and I can one day participate. We're well aware of the toil and the labor that is our lot here. So often the world burdens our shoulders with things that are difficult and hard, harsh and unpleasant, uncomfortable and inconvenient. And yet when we shuffle off this old fleshly coil that is that which is your body and mine at this time, and we are able to enjoy the rest that is prepared and available for those that are the children of God, oh, what a blessed and joyous occasion that's going to be. We look forward to the rest God offers. That rest that's mentioned here is a tremendous encouragement to those people of that day. Think twice before you leave Christ behind. If you go back to the law of Moses, look, Moses didn't lead them to the land of Canaan. Joshua led them there only for a while. Don't you want to cling to Christ who will take you to a permanent, eternal, everlasting rest? And that's the thing you and I look forward to today, isn't it? We don't want to go there for just a little while. We want to inhabit the glorious climes of heaven forevermore. And that's how the Bible closes in the Revelation, isn't it? With the turmoil and all the dust having settled in Revelation 20, with the beast and the dragon and the false prophet and all the hitchmen who have been the followers of the dragon cast into the eternal lake burning with fire and brimstone, we find in chapter 21 and 22 this glorious abode that is described as eternal. Eternal. Where there is never any crying, sorrow, pain, death, curse, unhappiness of any variety. And how often in those verses and in those two chapters do we notice the eternal nature of that glorious place? It is a refreshing scene to read those two chapters, isn't it? In light of those matters, and certainly in light of our study this evening, you'll notice we've already asserted, in terms of our lesson throughout, this nature of the possibility of losing our salvation. And note again the warnings uttered near the lower part of that slide, in which we can appreciate how often Jesus and the other writers remind us to be faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. As one gives some thought to that idea, you might ask, how can I be encouraged to be faithful? Are there some things that God reveals and sets forth in His Word that gives us daily encouragement to enjoy a faithful life here upon earth. I would suggest to you that this is the way this chapter closes. Having encouraged the people to seek for the rest of God, he gives in the last five verses of this chapter four ways, day by day, that helps us to remain faithful. I would ask that we quickly give some thought to what these are since they are so good for us to ever keep in mind. It begins in verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit into the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Isn't it beautiful to notice that after these first 11 verses, lifting high the thought of the rest of God available in heaven for those that are His faithful children, and the urgency to never be careless with regard to our salvation, verse 12 begins with the word for. That's a conjunction that links this to what has preceded it. He says, look, the Word of God is available. We have this living and active message from God that's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit into the joints and marrow. And what's more, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How then do we orchestrate our life in such a way that our mental thinking is right, that our heart is in tune with the will of God? We use His Word. It's the Word that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Human opinion is fruitless. It's immaterial and useless. What you or I may think will get us nowhere. But when we use the sacred Word of God and appreciate that it is a discerner of what's right and wrong, if you and I would like to know that which is right, here's the textbook. If we would like for that which is wrong to be identified and pinpointed, here's the textbook. If we would wish to know what activities are approved and what are not, how should one worship and why should one not worship, here's the textbook. This is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the first lesson we might keep in mind certainly is a matter of encouragement to seek and to find that rest is to use the textbook. Quite often in our schools we certainly appreciate how often the kids will ask, what's on the test? Give me a study guide for the final exam. Here's the study guide. God has given us everything on the final exam. All we have to do is make certain to open the book and to make certain to live our lives in compliance with it. This is the study guide. It's the textbook. Nothing else that's in here will be on that test. When your life and mine are judged by the secrets of the gospel, Romans 2.16, this will be among the books opened. And as we appreciate the glory of that great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, verse 11, when the books are opened, how grand it shall be to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see your life and mine in this era judged in accordance to it. The Word of God, the first thing we should keep in mind as we journey toward that eternal rest of God. But what's more? What about verse 13? What else should we keep in mind? Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The second thing we should perhaps keep in mind is the all-seeing eye of the God of heaven. You and I are not able to conceal, to hide, or in any way keep him from knowing that which is taking place in your life and mine. And it's pointless to try. There certainly can be occasions in which there are those that you and I know who may try to cover things up. Maybe you remember as a child when you tried to hide something from Dad. Or perhaps hide something from Mom and when they found it out, how unpleasant it was. It would have been far better just to tell them. It would have been far better to go to admit to what you had done. We should keep in mind as a matter of truthfulness, we can't hide from God no matter how much we try. We may, in fact, journey to the most far away distant hamlet on earth on the darkest night in the most far away village or place, and God will still know every step we take, every thought we have, every word we speak, 
every action we have taken. The 139th Psalm still reminds us in its opening ten verses about how that God is very well aware of those things that are taking place in your life and mine. No wonder the Proverbs writer affirmed in Proverbs 15.3 about the nature of God beholding the evil and the good. Perhaps the people of Israel should have learned that lesson a long time ago. I ask you to note with me in Ezekiel 8 verse 12 and also later in that same book how that they honestly thought the Lord seeth us not. They really believe that. That by some means they were able to conceal or hide various parts of their activities from him. And Ezekiel said, if I may paraphrase, you must be kidding. They couldn't hide from God. He knew about their idolatry. He knew about their faithlessness. And he knew about the kinds of lives they were living. And that's the reason they went into Babylonian captivity. He knew it all along, you see. And today, isn't it still true that when we approach that occasion of judgment, there will be no real opportunity to think, but God, I intended, I meant, I should have, I thought. Well, God will say, well, here is the final message. You didn't. You weren't. You aren't ready. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew seven twenty three. You see, we can't hide from God. We would do far better to spend our time seeking to please Him rather than try to hide from Him. The third lesson we find in verses 14 and 15 concern our high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The perfectness of our high priest. As often as we recall the family of Aaron and the high priesthood of the Old Testament based upon him, we will remember the failures that often accompanied that high priesthood. And among the failures, certainly one could list, it was only a temporary lifetime. Aaron died at some point. His sons died at some point, And the priesthood had to be transferred from one person to another. We have a permanent high priest. Jesus, the Son of God. We never have to worry about the reins changing, the rules changing. He is our high priest in this era. Did you note the language of verse 14? And where is he now? He's in heaven itself. No wonder that if we follow him, we shall end up where he is. And that's that place of rest we've already discussed. No wonder we're admonished in Revelation 14.4, Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. You see, knowing that he is in heaven, if we follow him whithersoever he goeth, that means you and I too will enjoy that glorious place. The perfectness of Jesus as our high priest reminds us of the very last thing in verse 16. You'll notice it says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain grace, or rather obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. And that word therefore solidly builds this on the verses that preceded it. We have a high priest. He himself lived sinlessly despite the fact he was tempted. And thus he can be there to provide us with the proper information and encouragement that we too can conquer a temptation, emerge victorious over it and through it. 
But notice it's the idea of prayer that is mentioned on this occasion. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Do we employ prayer as oft as we should? Are we as frequent in prayer as we ought to be? That's a question that each of us can honestly ask ourselves and also provide an honest answer. It would seem if we were to make some comments about the thoroughness of what that involves, certainly some thoughts could well be in order and some thoughts might well be made. Sometimes as we appreciate the things in our life that are lacking, one of the reasons might be we just aren't earnest enough in prayer. We just don't seek the Father enough and as urgently as we should in prayer. When things are so difficult and harsh, are we praying enough? Jesus stated in Luke 18, 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. We see the example of Daniel in Daniel 6. Three times a day he was found earnest in prayer and those about knew it. And it was that that they used to in fact arraign him before the authorities who put in place that law specifically to challenge and to cause trouble for Daniel. It did not deter him. We read of the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 164 making seven approaches a day to the God of heaven. Are you and I as earnest in prayer as we should be? That's a question that should rest on each of our hearts. For a people devoted to prayer and a person devoted to prayer will find in it the lovely thoughts of so many blessings that God will share. Perhaps one of the final things we should note from 1 Thessalonians 5 would be the 17th verse of that chapter. It only includes three words, pray without ceasing. As certainly as that does not involve a constant appearance of 24 hours a day on one's knees, it nonetheless does involve a mindset ever prepared and ready to approach the Lord even multiple times a day in prayer. Sometimes in the hecticness of our schedules, in the busyness of our day, are we quick to forget that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2? Do we forget the urgency of the fact that men ought always to pray? I can certainly be challenged by that. Perhaps you can as well. As we give thought to those matters, that has been four things that have closed this chapter that will help us on our way to accomplishing the place of that rest of God. In fairness, perhaps we can summarize our lesson tonight in language like this. This has been a powerful chapter in the book, as the others are also, and it has reminded us about the beauty of God's rest awaiting the faithful. Is your life right now in such a fashion that you are actively living for the opportunity to involve yourself in that rest? Are you anxiously awaiting the time you can in fact rest in the glorious goodness evermore with God? If the things in your life are not as they ought to be, and you know that matching your life with the dictates of this book is going to lead to disharmony, if that's true, it's not this book that's the one that's wrong. And it's not this book that needs correction. It's your life. And it's my life. It's that which needs to be remade by virtue of repentance and obedience to where it's in compliance with this book. Tonight we could help you if that's the need of your life. Maybe you've never become a Christian for even for the first time. But maybe after the study of Hebrews you've come to realize that you want your name in the book of life and you want your opportunity to enjoy this, this rest spoken of in Hebrews 4. 
that plan of salvation involves this. Hear the word of God. Hear the truth of the gospel and believe Jesus to be with all your heart the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. That means a change of mind that results in a change in action. Confess in an audible fashion the goodness of His name as the Son of God and simply be immersed, buried in water for the forgiveness of sins. If tonight we could help you accomplish that, it would be a tremendous day in your life and the first day in your real spiritual life. If you have done that, but you have not been faithful to that calling, maybe like these in Hebrews, you've allowed inattentiveness and apathy and indifference to cloud your path. No longer are you on fire for the Lord. You need to make a change this very night. Come back and admit and confess those sins to God. He'll be anxious to hear and forgive. And we as a congregation would be honored to pray on your behalf and with open arms with Christ welcome you into the faithful, to the faithfulness of His side again. If we could be of assistance to you this evening in either of those ways, won't you let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.